Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome everybody to this Forum for Philosophy event on the topic of anger. My name is Ella Whiteley and I'm a fellow in philosophy here at the LSE. Now, some suggest that we live in an increasingly angry world. Indeed, a 2019 Global Emotions report suggested that people are becoming more angry in addition to more sorts of stressed and worried. Now, some people point to things like social media as something that can encourage us to be angrier. Twitter usually gets a special mention in this context with its raft of what are pejoratively called uh, keyboard warriors, I believe. Um, Others point to things like the state of the world with particularly striking and salient social clashes over Brexit and Trump and trans rights and so on. Now, anger is very often treated as an unproductive emotion, psychologically as something that sort of eats away at people's mental and physical health, practically as something that fails to achieve what it aims at, and indeed socially as something that creates things like division and violence instead of understanding and solidarity and so on. But there are also some increasingly vocal reclamations of anger, particularly in connection with its role in helping us to understand ourselves and our place in the world, with its role in enabling moral judgments and moral actions, and indeed in fighting against oppression. Now, it's these sorts of ambivalences in the nature and utility of anger that we're going to turn to tonight. We're going to begin by considering what anger is before reflecting on some cases sort of against it and some of the cases for it. I am very excited to be joined in that conversation by four world-renowned experts on the subject. They are Owen Flanagan, who has written extensively on the topic, including a book published last year, Uh, entitled How to Do Things with Emotion, The Morality of Anger and Shame Across Cultures. Celine Leboeuf, who has written things about the political nature of the emotion of anger, considering this from a phenomenological point of view. Emily McRae, who has focused on how a tantric Buddhist perspective can shed light on anger and its political and moral value. And also, finally, Jesse Prince, who has written about the role of anger in moral judgments and moral action, in particular contrasting it with empathy. Now, importantly, there will be a chance for you two to ask some of your questions to the panelists. We're leaving around 15 minutes or so for this towards the end of of this event, which will take us up to around 7.15 p.m. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Uh, The instructions for how to do this are in the chat. And you can also tweet about the event using the hashtag LSE Forum. The final thing to note is that this event is being recorded in the hope that a podcast can be made afterwards, so long as we don't encounter any technical gremlins. So without further ado, let's talk about anger. It is probably sensible to start, I think, with a question about what anger actually is. I'm sure we'll circle back to this issue throughout the talk, but... I wondered if we might be able to start with you, Owen, for some introductory remarks about what you take to be the nature of anger. So we might wonder whether it's a straightforward emotion, perhaps a desire. What is anger to you? So I I guess the way I've thought about anger um, is to try to think about it the way 
um, psychologists think about it, the way empirical scientists think about it. And a standard way, I think, to think about anger is that um, in non-human animals as well as in humans, uh, it's probably, there's probably a basic sort of emotional disposition um, that evolved, it's an adaptation in the biological sense, uh, to um, uh, respond to threats, possibly in the first instance, to things like your resources, your food, uh, danger to close kin or yourself, um, and so on and so forth, and um, to lead to some kind of action um, to stop the other. And of course, there's you know, fairly good evidence that there's some uh, fairly universal, but there are cultural display rules, as they call them, facial expressions that reveal that I'm angry before I do anything. Uh, the emotion, in addition to feeling a certain way, I guess the angry way, although there's interesting questions about what exactly that feeling is, is irritation anger, is annoyance anger, you know, a rage and hate anger, it's, it's complicated. But usually there's a disposition to want to do something, to stop um, the threat. Um, what's one thing that's interesting about anger though in the psychological literature is that it's usually classified as a approach emotion. So when you ask say Americans what they wanna do when they're angry, they want to go at you. Um, uh, when you ask Belgium or Japanese people what they want to do, uh, they say they want to withdraw. Um, so is it an avoidance emotion or this, these aspects of it, I think, are highly culturally scripted and normed. So, be, so besides whatever you know, basic uh, disposition to see, see threats in a certain way, to feel a certain way, like I don't like this and I'm, getting, I'm gonna cause you harm if you keep coming at me in this way, um, uh, what dispositions and then what behavior come from it is unclear. Uh, one just other quick thing about it. Many people will think that behaving angrily is caused by anger always, but actually often it's caused by fear, behaving angrily as we call it. So it gets confusing uh, sometimes. So, so that's roughly the, the vicinity of how I think it's useful to think about the emotion. I mean, that's fascinating. I think you're identifying quite a few different themes in that from an emotion to desires to things like a disposition to act. So I want to sort of hold on to the emotion side of things for a second um, and come to you, Celine, who I know you've written a bit about the phenomenology of the emotion of anger. Um, and I was wondering if we might be able to comment a little on that. We already heard Owen saying that it can instantiate in different ways in different cultures. I think in your work, you comment sometimes on its expansive nature. I wonder if you think that's something that you might want to talk about a bit, but also whether you think that's a culturally specific instantiation or not. Thank you, Ella. Yes, I think of when I re research the phenomenology of anger as something that is expansive, at least in the cases I've studied. So I focused on uh, racial oppression and how the experience of anger can motivate you uh, behaviorally to take action or at least to recognize something as an injustice rather than staying kind of muted and not recognizing it as such. So yes, from a phenomenological standpoint, so from the description of our experience, I think anger has this um, felt at the level of the body um, sensation and also deep connection to action. So um, we were talking about whether anger, different cultures, it may be something like approach versus standing back, but I think in any case, um, anger has this bodily component to it. Um, I could say more, but maybe you want to turn to some of the other panelists. I'm not sure. I 
I think that's fast. There's lots of things that I do want to continue on with that. I realise. Yeah, let's. In fact, I do want to come to Emily next. Actually, uh, I just wanted to ask if you think there are different types of anger. Uh, so we're talking here about whether it's an emotion or a disposition to act and so on, and how those things might relate. Uh, but also, we might want to wonder what types of anger there are and whether there is a single unified phenomenon or just sort of this composite um, selection of things. So could you comment on that? Sure. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of different types of anger. I mean, my own view um, tends to be um, influenced by Buddhist views and Buddhist moral psychology, um, which sees anger as a type of mental event. Um, I don't even know if we could even say that mental exactly. It's a it's a kind of psychophysical event that would have somatic aspects, like Celine was just mentioning, would have motivational aspects, would have affective, um, cognitive. Um, they see it as a kind of um, complex phenomenon, and I guess I have kind of inherited that view. Um, and given its complexity, I would say. Um, yeah, there can be a lot of different types of anger. I mean, even just in the English language, we might talk about um, being indignant versus being frustrated or irritated or holding a grudge or being sulky. You know, those are all different kinds of shades of anger. Um, you know, in a therapeutic uh, kind of context, we might talk about healthy or unhealthy anger. In a social activism context, we might talk about effective versus ineffective anger. Um, in a Buddhist context, we might talk about compulsive anger versus anger non-compulsive or anger which we might have some freedom with regard to. That becomes a, an important distinction. So um, yeah, I guess the short answer to your question is I think our, depending on our purposes, yeah, there, we, there's lots of ways that we divide up anger. Fantastic. So you're talking there a little bit about sort of the cognitive dimensions of anger. Um, and there you also like mentioned how, of course, it does have these connections to action as well. And also maybe cognitive might be broader than just emotion as well. Maybe reason can be implicated in this. Uh, so I might come to you, Jesse, with that sort of question. Do you, what do you think in terms of uh, how, how anger relates to behavior and action and potentially reason as well, judgment and so on? Well, I think all emotions are fundamentally uh, embodied. That is, you can't have an emotion in a, in a state uh, where you're not disposed to act in some way. So action is integral to emotions. But I think we kind of, from our Cartesian inheritance of distinguishing mind and body, have tended to think that embodied states are somehow removed from, from thought, removed from meaning, removed from reason. And I think we should reject that idea. I think that uh, when you're in a state that disposes you to act, that very disposition carries information. Uh, lately, I've been thinking about it in terms of what I call imperatival affordances, which um, can be thought of as a sort of to-be-doneness. So when you've experienced a loss, you have this embodied feeling that we call sadness, which makes you want to withdraw, turn inward, maybe even do harm to yourself. Traditional societies that involve rending the clothing or covering yourself with dirt are all, uh, or prostrating yourself are all forms of, of expressing this bereavement or loss. And I think with anger, there's a kind of to be doneness that has to do um, with repairing uh, things that have gotten in our way. So fundamentally, I think anger is about um, obstruction. It's about our goals being thwarted in some way. And there are different contexts in which that can occur, different causes and different embodied responses to that. As Owen mentioned, there might be contexts or cultures in which the appropriate way to respond is to, is to turn with inward, to brood, to stew. 
um, to withdraw socially. In other societies, you might be socialized to combat, to confront, uh, to shout. That's going to depend on setting. In an academic setting, you might not be as, uh, say, physically aggressive as you might be if you had an altercation on a New York street. Um, and as others have pointed out in the history of, of the topic of anger, there is a tremendous role for, for social norms here, including norms of race and gender. So in the 80s, Marilyn Fry was pointing out how women's anger is typically silenced, how uptake of women's anger um, is limited, um, how women are, are described as pathological when they're angry. And in the same time period, a little bit earlier, Audre Lorde was describing ways in which anger uh, gets raised and her experiences as a black gay woman expressing anger, even in, in feminist settings that had white participants led to various efforts at, um, at silencing. So I think all these authors register that anger is responsive to one's predicament, responsive to ways in which one's goals have been obstructed, um, in that sense is meaningful, is reason sensitive, but is also embodied in a way that involves a certain disposition to act, to call people out, to shout out, to hold your ground, um, to withdraw. And those are all um, parts, integral parts of what anger fundamentally is. Wonderful. So it sounds like we're also touching a little bit on not just what anger is, but also the perceptions of anger that we have. Um, so the, how we perceive different sort of social demographics, say, as exhibiting anger um, and the different judgments we might have there. Um, one, one theme that I just want to pick out from there, obviously, Jesse, you're raising a lot of like how anger is directed often at something in the world. Um, and I wonder if there's a difference often between anger directed at a person versus at a state of affairs in the world, whether that's a social state of affairs or something else. Um, and just to sort of round off a little bit this section of figuring out what anger actually is, uh, Owen, can I return to you if you could expand on that a little bit, if you think there is this distinction between types of anger in terms of their objects? Oh, sorry, I think you're on mute still, if you, thank you. Thanks very much. It was great listening to my co-panelists uh, too and uh, advancing this conversation. So um, yes, there are out there in the literature, and this goes back, as Jesse just mentioned, and Emily indicated a really long time. There's never been a culture, oral or written, that hasn't reflected a lot on anger. It's good and it's bad aspects. Um, and. Uh, so um, yes, th there is sometimes, we're all familiar actually with a kind of, you might call it purely impersonal anger, you know, a kind of uh, fury at the gods for a tragedy. Um, that's a kind of um, a familiar kind of anger and who could object to that? Sometimes the world just deals us terrible blows, the slings and arrows. Um, of course, there's a lot of personal anger and one could start actually, um, so I'd like to distinguish between anger in different spheres. So there's personal anger, the kind of anger that one has between friends and family. Um, then there's what Martha Nussbaum calls anger in the middle level. That's anger about, you know, on the phone to the person who takes care of answering about your cable TV or returning an item to a store. And then there's political anger. Now, though, all those tend to be directed at people or human populations. Um, uh, two kinds of anger that I've come to worry about um, um, are what uh, some people call payback anger or revenge anger, uh, spiteful anger, where the main aim of the anger is to get right back at the person who just hurt you. Um, sometimes, well, I'll stop. Another kind of anger, uh, and the reason I bring that one up is 
I haven't done, this is empirically, uh, you can study this. I often ask students, and when I give talks about anger, about, I said, think of the, all the times you were angry in your personal life to loved ones and family and friends. Tell me, answer these two questions. How successful were you in getting what you wanted when you got angry to those people? That's an instrumental question. Did you get, has, what's your batting average in success? And then the other one is how morally good do you feel about yourself once you finished? And what pe most people tell me about anger in the personal sphere is that they have a very low winning average on either the instrumental getting what they want or on feeling good about themselves. Part of the reason they don't feel good about themselves, I suspect, is because of a problem that the Seneca, the Stoic said, he was worried about anger. He said, it always gets involved in the outskirts of the case. You know, so suddenly I'm mad at Jesse, I tell him what I'm mad about, but the next thing I find myself doing is talking about how he didn't wash the dishes when we were roommates in 1974. And this is a kind of a problem with anger keeping his focus. There's a second kind of anger, um, which uh, I call, uh, I call uh, pain passing or cathartic anger. I think this is a this is kind of low hanging fruit, but I think it's worth starting with because a lot of the anger we see in the world in social media is kind of a, um, it's because of a permission that goes back in my life to the late 60s that you should vent your feelings all the time. And I think a lot of people feel that they're allowed to vent their own pain, depression, anxiety on even loved ones, or that it's permissible to vent it to strangers. So that's a, that, that's a person directly kind. And then finally, of course, there are the kinds. Today in America, we're celebrating the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, there's a kind of anger that is uh, directed at huge social inequities. So anger, um, and I, you know, anger about uh, racism, sexism, uh, uh, there's uh, movements about uh, called Never Again, about ending gun violence in schools and in synagogues and things like that. Those are directed towards terrible, terrible social policies uh, and um, structural issues about racism and sexism. It's an interesting question, and I'm sure now the other speakers will have a chance to talk about this. Uh, it seems clear you can't completely purify your heart in engaging in anti-racist or anti-sexist uh, uh, social justice movements from uh, wanting to hurt the other, possibly, the question of whether it would be good to purify your heart of wanting that is an interesting question. Fantastic. So that moves us quite neatly onto sort of the cases maybe against anger, which I wanted us to turn to a little bit now. Um, I think, yeah, as I said at the beginning, a lot of us are quite used to, pre-theoretically at least, thinking of anger as quite bad or sort of maybe straightforwardly bad even. Um, there's a significant vein of intellectual thought suggesting that anger is just immoral. It's like at odds with the aims of ethics, for instance. Um, there's also some strong current of this thought in a lot of Buddhist philosophy, which is something that I think, Emily, you've talked about, um, sometimes seeing anger as one of the key poisons, indeed, in sort of human nature. So I was wondering if you might be able to expand a bit on, on how the Buddhist tradition, a lot of the Buddhist tradition might have seen anger in that way. Sure. Yeah, so anger um, has the dubious distinction of being one of the main poisons um, in our in our psychology. Um, the word second used for anger also typically includes something like hostility, hatred, sometimes resentment. So it's a kind of um, more broad category than maybe just strictly anger as, as we we're talking about it. 
Um, I think that, you know, the ways just to maybe just to give the, the short overview here of how Buddhists are, are tend to think about about anger. Um, it's it's a it's a category of um, it's a kind of psychophysical state that is called a klesha, or sometimes that gets translated as an affliction. Um, it's the type, it's not exactly an emotion, um, but it includes some emotions. Um, but basically they're the type of states that tend to produce suffering, that tend to be compulsive, that tend to um, self-generate. So if you notice that like sometimes you might have a certain kind of feeling and might even though it's maybe unpleasant or provoking suffering, it, it causes you to have more and more of that kind of feeling, like maybe envy or something can be like this. Um, so anger is one of those states. What's important about those states, though, from a Buddhist point of view, is that they're not we're not fated to have them. They're not they're not permanent like flaws on the on human nature. The idea is that um, we can work with them. So they're manageable states. They may even be eliminable states, uh, according to, to Buddhist thinkers. And there's three ways, main ways that we can kind of um, uh, make these work with these kleshas or these afflictive uh, qualities. Um, and they basically correspond to, to main um, Buddhist traditions. So in some of the early uh, Buddhist traditions, we get a lot of uh, talk about eliminating them, um, uprooting them, cutting them off, um, preventing them is also in, uh, in, in that category. Um, and the idea is that these are just going to cause you suffering and you don't want them. So just get rid of them. And that's pretty similar, I think, to the Stoic arguments that we see in uh, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. They're a lot of similarities there. But there's another strain in, in Buddhist thought um, that's more, um, for those of you who are familiar with Buddhism, is more common in Mahayana Buddhism. Um, and that is to replace anger with something that's uh, relevantly similar but positive. So this is what's called the antidote approach to dealing with negative mental states. So every, like the main mental states that are negative will have an antidote. So the antidote for anger is compassion. Um, and the reason, and it's not just random, the reason is because anger is about something that's suffering causing that's happening that someone else is doing. And so is compassion, but they're very different orientations towards the suffering that other people are causing. The third way um, that's associated um, with maybe the tantric or Vajrayana um, 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 sex, I guess you could say, of, of Buddhism is um, not to replace anger and not to eliminate it, but to what they call use it as the path. And what they mean by that is the path to liberation, the path to freedom. And um, what that involves is kind of tricky, but just to put it um, very briefly, it's, it's a method of, of working with anger that um, takes seriously what anger is doing in our psychology, what uh, the power that it has, um, the nature of it. Um, for instance, they like to point out that even when we feel very gripped by anger, we don't constantly feel angry like every second by second by second by second, right? There's actually gaps. And isn't that interesting, right? So using the experience of anger to learn about your mind and to learn about other people's minds and to learn about the world. And all those three approaches, I think, are consistent in that they, that they ultimately think that anger is not something desirable or virtuous, but they take a very different approach to what do you do about it or what, do you, what can you value about anger, um, even if you don't want to extol it as a virtue.
fascinating right i definitely also want to come back to a lot of those especially more sort of positive roles for anger um a little bit later uh, thank you so much that was so interesting um celine i'd love to be able to come to you next if that's okay because there's another thread in actually what owen mentioned as well earlier um mentioning martha nussbaum and uh, who's somebody who overall is quite critical of anger um, and I know that you engage with her a little bit in uh, one of your papers on anger um, I was wondering if there are any parts of of anger that you agree with her in terms of having quite a, a negative outcome or just not being very productive and yeah maybe certain contexts or certain types of anger that you you sort of agree just it maybe are a bit immoral say yeah, thank you, Ella. I think that I I agree with Martha Nussbaum on some points, but I think that anger, maybe to anticipate a bit, can be productive. So she, a lot of her conceptualization of anger has to do with this payback aspect of it. So anger is immoral insofar as it has this connotation of retribution, and isn't that kind of a base thing? Shouldn't we, you know, think beyond in a more elevated way of our interpersonal relations? And I don't think that anger necessarily has these features. I think that anger can motivate us. We're talking about its bodily component to take action, but it doesn't have to have a payback kind of aspect to it. Let's say I decide I'm angry with um, a political party. So I think a lot about political at the political level, but um, you know, I may run for office. I may gather signatures. I may do all sorts of things to handle a situation that don't involve direct retribution to the person who has angered me. Also, I just want to um, address one issue that's also political in nature, which is I think that anger gets a lot of its bad rap with regard to the question of violence. So does anger necessarily give rise to violence? And I think that's a complicated question. So if we're judging the morality of anger based on like it's giving rise to violence, I think we're painting anger into broad um, brushstrokes. So for example, anger could give rise to a peaceful protest or anything political action not involving violence. And then there's a separate question. Sometimes violence may be considered moral. Let's say you're doing leading a war against some fascist regime. Maybe that violence in itself is not um, immoral. So I think it just gets very complicated if we think of anger as leading to behavior, leading to violent behavior, then you've simplified, oversimplified things. And I don't think you can fully um, critique anger from a moral perspective if you're doing this oversimplistic, um, painting such an oversimplistic picture. Fantastic, thank you. Um, I'm gonna turn in fact now to, oh, oh sorry, Emily, please go ahead, jump in. I just wanted to jump in real quick because I was inspired by what um, Celine was just saying and, and also something that Owen said that I forgot to, to comment on before, but the, the objects, different objects of anger, like personal versus political, um, I think it's really, that that's, um, gives a lot of clarity, conceptual clarity, but I guess I, I, I kind of want to muddy the picture a little bit to, to kind of point out that sometimes it's as from an individual's perspective, that can be very hard to sort out. And I'm thinking, for, um, for example, political anger about racism or sexism um, and the ways like, for instance, to use sexism as a as an example, the ways that these show up in our interpersonal relationships. Right. Um, so and racism for that matter, too. So um, I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Um, to to add on maybe to what Owen and Celine were saying that it can um, it can be 
uh, actually subjectively difficult to know, like in in your say, if you have a, a you know in your family life or something. Um, well, how do you separate anger at the institution of motherhood from the daily activities of mothering? You know, it's, that can be really difficult to work out. So I, I just want to add that complication. That's a great point, not least because I think a lot of people find that it's, you know, even if theoretically you're able to come up with a principled way to distinguish good and bad anger, being able to sort of uh, ascertain <laughs> what any given sort of case um, fits into, which category it fits into is incredibly complex. Uh, Jesse, did you also uh, have a point on that? I just wanted to weigh in a little bit on the on the potential negatives of anger, but happy to that would be fantastic. No, that I was going. I was first of all going to see whether Owen wants to, and then uh, I have you afterwards. But I think this actually probably fits better. So please go ahead. Well, partially I was ripping off of um, something that struck a chord with me when Celine was speaking, which is I do think this association between anger and vengeance is actually kind of antiquated. I think that's an idea that was very prevalent in the ancient world, but it's not so integral to anger today. And I think we're continually in dialogue with this view. Aristotle defines anger in part as a desire to bring pain to those who have brought you pain. And I, I don't think that's the prototype of contemporary anger. So we keep seeing these authors like Nussbaum arguing against basically a straw man. And if you go back to the ancient world, you read Seneca who wrote a magnificent book length diatribe against anger. It's, it's wonderful, his arguments are great, but again, he's arguing against this vengeance focused anger. He says anger makes us suffer, it makes us ugly, it, it unroots reason, it, um, it applies to oneself, so self-destructive, it applies to everyone, so it leads you to want to harm everyone. And uh, most importantly, he says, anger causes war and is a greater cause of death than pestilence or any other natural ailment. So he sees anger as this destructive force. But again, if you unyoke the link between anger and violence, a lot of that critique falls away. And similarly, because this is a day honoring the fallen Martin Luther King, I want to point out that in his final book, um, Where Do We Go From Here? He engages the Black power movement. So Stokey Carmichael kind of, I think, in, in his mind, in a certain way, betrayed the nonviolent movement by endorsing Black power and embracing violence as a strategy. And I think King there is very uncomfortable with violence. And the subtitle of his book implies that we have a choice between what he calls community or chaos. And he sees anger as this, he was so interested in the notion of discipline that we need to focus our energies in ways that really involved a lot of self-constraint. There were training sessions where people learned how to take a police baton unflinchingly. And it's incredibly moving and empowering to see that. But he never once implied that anger wasn't at the root of the outcry against injustice. It was just a disciplined anger as opposed to a vengeful anger. So I think we need to harness that. Um, but in terms of real negatives, I did want to mention that when we talk about this reclaiming anger in the context of oppression, we have to also remember that anger is a tool of the oppressor. And when we say we need to allow for women's anger, we need to allow for the anger of people of color, we need to allow for the anger of gender nonconformist trans people or people who are gay or other who are persecuted, people in the, de in the developing world, people in colonized uh, contexts, people in diaspora. It doesn't mean that we should also therefore give license to people of privilege and power. So I myself, as a white man, 
don't feel so comfortable with my own anger. Don't feel so entitled to that. Maisha Cherry in her recent book on anger has a chapter on sort of allyship, white allyship, and whites who get so caught up in their own investment in these things and, and patting themselves on the back for their own activism or their own rage at, at injustice that isn't sort of wielded against them, uh, distract, they derail, as in the case of certain of the, of the riot, rioting and looting that occurred, they can bring a bad uh, reputation to a, to a just cause. So I think it's very important for people in positions of privilege, even if they feel the anger, to control that and take their marching orders from people who are oppressed. That's fascinating. Yeah, the Maisha Cherry's book, I think it's The Case for Rage, isn't it? It's absolutely fantastic. Um, it also, what your comments there about like potentially a straw person being used um, in terms of anger being associated only with vengefulness. Um, I feel like there's some ambivalence maybe in how anger is represented in uh, popular culture more widely. Because I feel in some senses, I, I want to say, oh, maybe it's being kept alive by all of these films where you see this angry villain and like it's only seen as vengeance and retribution and stuff. But I feel like anger is often behind as well a lot of depictions of the goodies in films as people who are again like overcoming some great um you know injustice to them or like it's use it they're using it to spur them to go and save their spouse or whatever it might be um so i wonder if there's the cultural depictions have widened or you know how wedded we are still to this uh, notion of vengeance um owen can i turn to you here because i know that you you actually do offer uh, quite a sort of an, an impassioned view that anger can very often be unproductive, even though you certainly allow for cases of anger being productive and moral. Um, you think that the world, as I understand it, does currently have too much anger. Um, I wonder if you might be able to comment on that. Yeah, so my, my sort of guiding observation or just my feeling was that I was, I've lived through two very angry times and one was late sixties and into the early seventies when I was a student. But that was an angry, I mean, that was a time of the beginnings of feminism. Uh, there was a Stonewall was in late, about 1969 or 70s so gay rights. I was in New York at the time. Uh, there was anti-Vietnam war. There was huge civil rights throughout the sixties and into seventies. But that was an anger with hope I felt. And of course we were, Many of us were inspired by King, um, uh, very much so in how we proceeded to engage in those movements. Um, I felt, and this is just uh, that this is the second, the, another angry time we're living in, and that although I, I don't have any complaints actually about the way that the anti-racist or uh, struggles against sexism and so on and so forth are being carried out. Those are entirely righteous projects, and I really value what Celine and Jesse just said about that those are, we, we've learned a lot about how to carry out those kinds of movements and they are righteous. And people that I know in Black Lives Matter uh, 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 demonstrations that I went to, um, there wasn't anger, there's sadness and frustration and compassion and exhaustion, some anger. Okay, what, what's wrong now though? Well, there is, I think, so just following up on what Celine and Jesse said, I think Nussbaum makes two mistakes. One, they've identified it. One is that she says anger is conceptually tied to revenge. I mean, that's just implausible uh, on its face because most, it just isn't. Um, and I, I hadn't thought about the way Jesse just put it about it being sort of an old fashioned view that goes back to, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys and the old, the old ways that people would carry out uh, anger. Um, 
so Nussbaum says that, I think that's false and they both indicated why. I think the other thing that's false and peculiar about something she says, she sometimes says that people think they're, when they're angry, they fantasize that they'll get back what they lost. So I want vengeance on the person who murdered my brother. And I, she thinks, but I don't think anyone thinks that. I think you'd have to be kind of peculiar to think you'd get back your brother. Um, uh, so I just don't see either of her sort of, one is a kind of a psychoanalytic surmise, one is an ancient historical one. I do think, however, that in the personal sphere, people behave sometimes uh, to get vengeance on friends and loved ones even right away. I don't think it's disappeared in that way. The other thing is something, this uh, switches to Emily. I think something enormously value about the Buddhist view and actually the Stoic view is what I started to notice, and this has to do maybe with this view that I call the um, pain passing or ventilating view, the permissions, is the Buddhist view, as Emily put it, is watch out for anger that's completely in the service of insignificant desires of your own ego. So if you watch people sometimes in lines in America, they huff and puff and moan, and then they get out of the line and they go to their friends and they say, you won't believe what I just went through. I was in the line at Starbucks and the person in front of me ordered a triple macchiato with you know, Antiguan virgin coconut shavings and they tried to pay my check and my life is ruined. And the friends hug her and say, oh, I'm so sorry for you. That's outrageous. I mean, and this is where the Stoics said, study astronomy and get the, get, get the right perspective on yourself. <laughs> God didn't create the world or, or heaven didn't create the world to satisfy all your urges instantaneously. And I think that is a dangerous feature. In fact, one of the major findings from some of the psychologists I study is that when you ask uh, uh, people what makes them most angry, just off the top of their head, Americans say, and this is not in the top five for any other people so, studies so far, Americans say, wasting, my fucking time and you have to put it that way because i own it it's my time and you are interfering with it and i think that is infantile so but that's at the low level of what we could do in our everyday ways to not suffer ourselves why get yourself in that you know so sometimes you know and i'm prone to this too i utter to myself i don't know if it's a stoic saying or an epicurean saying be indifferent to indifferent things there just are some things that don't matter, subspatia eternitatis, and chill out. Anyway. Fantastic. I, I like as well the connection there to um, ego, because I feel like it might be behind a little bit um, some of the points that Jesse was making earlier about, you know, allyship and rage and how sometimes uh, allies of uh, oppressed groups who exhibit a lot of rage aren't always directing that in the right way. And sometimes it's uh, something that helps to make them feel like they're more of a, I don't know, they're more of a moral person or whatever it might be in virtue signal or whatever term you might want to use there. Um, so you just brought up Owen there as well, the um, Emily's sort of uh, view about the, the tantric Buddhist perspective on anger uh, and how that might actually show us a way that um, anger can be sort of moral and productive and so on. And obviously, Emily, you did kind of hint towards that a little bit earlier, but could you expand now on uh, how you think we can apply this uh, perspective here? Yeah, sure. So um, I just wanted to uh, also kind of reiterate what um, Owen said and just to comment briefly on the, about the, the vengeance issue. I too think that um, 
uh, I also have stoic phrases that I utter to myself, like my favorite is from Epictetus, where he says something like, um, if you go to the bathhouse, expect to be splashed, <laughs> right? Like if you're in a grocery store, expect to wait in line. Like that's just part of our reality. Um, and so I, I, I really appreciate that. And thanks for mentioning that. And in terms of the vengeance thing, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, um, but I do. And I think, yeah, it, that might be, uh, that definitely seems overly narrow and the, the link to vengeance and violence. Um, but I do also think that, um, there is a lot of anger that is about just, just getting one in there, just getting a little hurt in there on somebody else. And maybe it's not as full-blown as vengeance, like that's a kind of complex concept um, or violence even, depending on how we define violence. But I think there is a lot of, of anger that does just wanna poke um, that I feel myself and have, have um, felt. Um, but in terms of your actual question, Ella, um, the, um, the, the view that the third view that I mentioned of the, the different types of Buddhist view, um, what I'm calling it like a more tantric or Vajrayana view, that um, is a view that takes, I think, special cases of anger um, and tries to work with them. And the, the metaphor that I use in, in my uh, written work is kind of metabolize the anger. And the reason I use that word is because there's a really nice image um, in some Tibetan um, 10th century texts and, and other texts as well, uh, where you get this idea of a, of a peacock eating poisonous um, plants which strictly speaking, actually, I guess isn't true. They eat poisonous snakes, but there were no peacocks in Tibet. So I guess they maybe got that um, a little bit yeah, different. But the idea is that they, the peacock takes the poison, which of course in the Buddhist context is something like anger, and they actually use it for nourishment by changing it. And one of the ways that they change it is precisely getting um, rid of this desire to hurt, desire to pass pain, desire for vengeance or violence. Um, and by, by um, trying to kind of separate out that desire from other aspects of um, the experience of anger, um, the idea is to transform it into something really productive. In historical Buddhist texts, the, the main um, uh, case isn't social justice. So uh, we have to, if we want to apply it to that case, we have to do a little bit of transposing. But the case that they use just to um, uh, represents it, you know, kind of as it's given, is actually the kind of anger that we feel at our own faults. So when we get sick of the things that we're doing, because we do them again and again and again and again, like addiction and anxiety and on all these things that we uh, often struggle with, uh, we can get frustrated with, with ourselves. And that frustration for, for uh, Buddhist traditions can be, can be uh, related to like actually renouncing them, renouncing those behaviors. If we use the frustration um, well, if we transform it into something powerful and motivating. And you know, my, I guess my sense is that we could also do that in cases like uh, social injustice. Um, we could use that kind of Buddhist view of metabolizing the anger um, to, to affect some sort of positive, motivate positive change. Fantastic. That I feel segues quite neatly into some of Celine's work, where I know you also look at the role of anger in overcoming oppression. Um, 
And I realize that you do that from maybe from a slightly different angle, like a phenomenological angle, but maybe could you comment a little bit on that? And maybe if there are any parallels between your and Emily's work in this respect. I actually, for just a moment, wanted to back up on some of the points about evaluating anger. I think they're different, maybe at least three dimensions. So there's, in terms of whether anger is fitting, whether, um, you know, an actual harm has been done. If someone actually accidentally, sorry, steps on my foot um, on the bus, then anger may not be the fitting response. I think there's also to go back to what Owen was saying about different angry periods. Is it proportionate, you know, the, the anger that I'm experienced to harm that was done? If you tease me and I blow up and in a rant, then it may not be pro proportionate to the actual harm that was done. And finally, I think we also, and this connects back more to a political case at the targets of our anger. Let's say I'm suffering in poor um, socioeconomic circumstances and I direct my anger at um, immigrants or people of color rather than at the unjust um, socioeconomic policies that were put in by my government. I think that also that's a way of evaluating the anger. Who's the proper target of the anger? So um, yeah, that's what I want to say in terms of backing up. And I think that anger um, can have this metabolic, I think to use um, Emily's metaphor, way not just at a personal level, but also at the socio-political level in terms of channeling social change, motivating it. Fantastic. And it makes me think as well of like, I, I think quite a lot of my students approach the topic of like emotion by thinking it's got no connection at all to rationality or that it, you can't, it can't be more or less warranted um, and then you try and look at things like Philippa Foote's examples of uh, is it is it warranted to be terrified of a snail on the ground well maybe not but maybe it is warranted if it had massive teeth or something you start to fill in the blanks about what situation situational features warrant or not that um, emotion and um, so I just Selena could you comment a little bit more on what you think it is about the phenomenology of anger that makes it apt for overcoming um, or helping in, you know, fight against oppression in those contexts. Yeah, um, one thing that Jesse mentioned a, a few minutes ago was the bodily component of um, anger. And I think that phenomenology, when we think about bodily experience and reflect on different passages, one of the ones that I've spent a lot of time on is uh, Franz Fennel's descriptions of anger, black anger in black skin, white masks. But anyway, so anger has this bodily dimension to it and it can, at least the way he describes it, have this expansive attribute rather than just suffering in silence. Um, once he feels the anger, the black man that he's describing feels anger, he's motivated to do something. And in the case that he's describing, the passage I focused on, um, possibly insulting someone. So. Recon, you know, recognizing, but also responding to the harm that has been done. But again, I think we have to distinguish in evaluating anger, the actual appropriate response that, you know, what response is called for, is it something like violence or peaceful protests or what have you? Fantastic, thank you. Um, that also for me links a little bit to some of uh, Jesse's work about um, the connection between anger and other emotions and not just action but also like moral judgment more generally um 
Jesse, would you be able to comment a bit on that? Because I know you situate sometimes your position against people who treat empathy, for instance, as in, you know, what that that's something that is totally key to moral judgment and is what motivates us to act well. Um, and I know that you instead push back against that and, and sort of say that actually anger is a bit of an underlooked, uh, overlooked, sorry, um, uh, emotion here. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just uh, sort of to, to fill in the picture a little bit, just quickly rattle off, I think, a bunch of the things that make anger sort of important and kind of culminate with, with moral judgment. First of all, there's really important work lately showing that anger has important epistemic roles. It helps alert us to cases where we're being oppressed. So Alison uh, Jagger's work from the 80s on this and her idea of outlaw emotions, when you're told to feel a certain way, but you're being mistreated and start finding a, a sort of disquiet from within that alerts you to the fact that maybe maybe this is not okay. And uh, Lara Silva in some recent work has been really developing that idea in the context of anger lately. Anger can be didactic. It can help teach others uh, that you're being mistreated or that something is wrong. Anger can be motivational, something that several people in this conversation have commented on most recently, Celine. Anger can be exhortative. It can help form bonds of solidarity, bring people together. It can be a call to arms. Anger can be suasive. It can put pressure on your oppressor and give them the warning that you will not take this uh, quietly. Anger can be uh, esteemic in the sense that it can promote self-esteem. Maisha Cherry has talked about that. It can restore dignity. This relates to some of Celine's work on the notion that um, being uh, subjected to the white gaze can lead to a kind of disfluency that can be restored um, through experiences of anger. Anger can be therapeutic. As somebody who grew up sort of in the punk rock world where we would sort of act out our rage without anything instrumental, without believing we were gonna change society, even rioting, people got very upset that there was property damage in the context of some of the uh, Black Lives Matter riots, but, the idea that when you've gotten to a point you're, where you're in a society that's broken, that, that's harmful and pernicious and holding you down, that you can act out by causing damage, there's a therapeutic aspect to that. Um, anger may have been some intrinsic value. There's wonderful work by Amiya Srinivasan arguing that recognizing injustice with anger as opposed to without is an intrinsic good. And we have a student at CUNY who I'm sure will all be uh, familiar to this panel within a few years, though not yet, named Itsui Nakaya Perez. And Itsui has done wonderful work uh, writing about the intrinsic value of anger, talking about it as a vital force and having positive valence. But the, the question you asked, Ella, to come back to that is really uh, the sort of focus of, of much of the work I've done on anger in the past, which is that without anger, there simply is no morality. As people in the British moral tradition argued, people like Francis Hutcheson and, and, um, and David Hume and Adam Smith, the moral world, the, the range of values that we have are not part of the mind-independent reality that's described by science. They're impositions, they're projections. Good and bad, just like beauty and ugliness, are our responses to the world. Um, you could describe injustice and think that's a good thing. To see injustice as bad is to view it negatively, to have a negative response to it, to be outraged by it. So without anger, we lose that capacity, we lose morality itself. So its most fundamental role can be thought of as a moral ontological role. It literally creates the domain of value. 
And for people who are experiencing oppression, we have these ideas of adaptive preferences where people are sort of inculcated to accept abuse. So to get to, get to a tipping point where enough is enough, where you recognize that you're being uh, treated in a dehumanizing um, or oppressive way, and to experience that through your uh, rage is to, in some way, bring the wrongness of that into concrete uh, reality. And I don't think compassion does that. Compassion is not fundamentally or essentially moral. It can arise in context where somebody has been injured through no moral fault, let's say through you know, a, an act of nature. Um, and there's a lot of empirical evidence suggesting that compassion is not especially motivating. So people can feel sorry for somebody who's suffering, but it won't necessarily be a call to arms, won't necessarily bring them uh, to, to, to act. And I think in a sort of uh, maybe a little more pointed way, there's an arrogance to, to compassion. It's a looking down. And especially when thought of in the context of empathy, which is supposed to be a feeling what the other feels, that arrogance becomes really apparent. Because if we talk about social justice, and if I say as, as a white man situated in my particular social position, that I empathize with somebody who experiences oppression every time they walk into a store, every time they get into their car and are, and are passing a, a you know, police patrol vehicle, every time they walk down a street and have somebody cross over because of the color of their skin. If I say I can understand that, um, that's just insulting. That's epistemically arrogant. And it's very important that we recognize the limits of empathy in this context, that we learn to listen and understand, um, but that we don't have the presumption to think that we can really feel what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. Wonderful. So I wonder whether before we turn to Q&A, we just take something from, from that point there. And I want to open this to anyone who wants to answer, uh, which is we're, we're touching on obviously a lot of ways in which we think anger can be productive. But of course, Jesse's put on the table here the idea that it's actually a requisite, a prerequisite for something like morality or value, like we actually need anger for these things. Um, do people feel that that is the case for whether it is morality more generally or value or whether it is overcoming oppression, say, um, do you think that anger is actually an integral ingredient to any of these sorts of struggles or domains? Uh, Owen. So whenever Jesse um, says something that strongly, I listen. Uh, and but I'm not prepared to either take it up. I mean, I don't I, I, I it's an interesting point to identify that emotion, the emotion of anger as the sort of key to morality. And I'm a little hesitant to adopt it, but I want to throw out an example, which some people in this room know. I guess my first reaction to Jesse, I, I think I agree with everything he said about the positive uses of anger, especially when it comes to injustice. I just think we can't live in a world where we don't perceive injustices probably without, without, without anger, and we, we need anger. Okay, that said, I wonder though, and, and this is partly based on my work in just looking at the way other cultures do it. We depend in America, North America, I would say, more on anger than um, in other cultures. Now what, but I, for, to do morality, I mean, Alan Gibbard has talked about this. He thinks that our morality is a, is a morality of anger at the bad things that are done in the world and guilt at, towards ourselves, where guilt is anger turned inward. So that would be a kind of a view that would go along with Jesse's. But 
I invite people to think about this example that may help the audience too, because Emily has written about this at least. So Martha Nussbaum gives an example from Elie Wiesel. And this is a story about um, a Wiesel, I think is like, we'll say a 10 year old in a concentration camp and it's liberated by American soldiers. And Elie Wiesel reports that when the American soldiers came in, the sergeant or the lieutenant, the, the top officer of the Americans started to uh, uh, howl in rage at the outrage. And Wiesel says, at that point, humanity returned. And uh, most people have written about this, like that example as an example of where, what else could be your reaction than outrage? But I at least think this, it is possible to imagine that kind of case with the American soldiers arriving and seeing this hard death camp. Um, and, uh, uh, wailing in sorrow, and that the ch a child, a scared child, might might in fact be terrified by a raging soldier, and in fact, why not a contagion of tears in that case? I ask that because I'm not recommending that we that that we have a morality of sadness. I totally agree, by the way, with everything Jesse and Paul Bloom and other people say about empathy. It's the most overrated but we, I'm not gonna to go to that in that road. Um, uh, it's just not necessary for lots of morality. But I guess I don't see that, I, we, I guess my reaction to what Jesse said would be, we need all the emotions or most of the emotions, fear, anger, sadness, they all probably together with all kinds of reasoning are what we need to, to identify problems with the world. Um, so I would be hesitant to put all the work on anger. And one other quick thing, when I think about social movements, the one movement that I think of that when, when people talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter or whatever, th there's a lot of anger, of course, in that movement and justifiably so. There are other movements like the anti-gun movement in America, never, hashtag never again, after these terrible deaths and shootings we've had at Stoneman Douglas and way back to Sandy Hook. I don't think those are motivated by the people I know in them by anger as much as by love, um, fear, um, solid, you know, feelings of solidarity. So I, I guess I want, I, I, I'm not gonna stand with anger as the absolute necessity in all uh, responses to bad things. Fantastic. Um, Emily, if you, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and then we'll, we'll move on to the Q and A. Okay, just very briefly, I don't know what I how I feel about uh, Jesse's claim either. I'm going to have to think about it, but I do just want to point out that um, some of the things that are some of the ways that compassion was depicted, we do have to, I think, be a little bit careful there because. Um, just like anger is defined in a lot of different ways, and some are old-fashioned and some are more new, um, I think the same is true for compassion as well. And then, of course, in different cultural traditions and different philosophical traditions. So, for instance, in the Buddhist tradition, compassion is defined as an active emotion. It's, it, it is doing something. Um, there's even philosophers who, Buddhist philosophers, who will say that if you're not doing something, then you don't properly feel compassion. So, I just want to add that as um, I think that there's similar nuances and complexities on that side of the question as well. 
Wonderful. To be honest, that's perfect. It's kind of preempting one of the questions that we've had anyway, which I think we've now answered. So I will actually move on to something else. That's from Botian Liu, who's I think hopefully satisfied a little bit from that discussion. Um, one question is uh, mentions both sort of uh, Jesse and Emily here, uh, saying uh, Jesse, you stated that emotion is action based. There is no emotion without action, um, something like that. So can you speak about that view in terms of what Emily McRae discussed about Buddhists wanting to get rid of anger? Do you see a connection between your view and the meditation practice in Buddhism of sitting to lower the ego? Uh, ego, sorry. So just to sit, no action, no anger, just lower your ego that way. Uh, first, I'll say something outrageous and offensive um, with with apologies, which is, I, you know, I think we've been very um, in in Western philosophical traditions acquainted with Nietzsche's critique of Christianity, where the idea is that this is an organized religion was a power play that essentially involved a certain kind of um, oppression. I think we also need to be wary of other inherited um, moral traditions that have a religious foundation. And the thought that the self-abnegation associated with meditative practice in the history of Buddhism might have been used at times historically as a power play to keep people who were um, already in a, in a position that was relatively abject in a perpetual state of inactivity. Um, so I, I, I think we should be open to a cynical reading of certain moments in history where things that are encouraged on large populations as part of the moral foundation could have been used as an instrument of oppression. So when we harness Buddhism as a liberation politic, we need to have that caution in mind. And then the question becomes, and I'm, I would really defer to Emily here because I'm, I'm no expert, but the question then becomes, can this Buddhist meditative practice, which is a turning inward on the self and also to some extent involves a metaphysical commitment to a no self principle, can that be turned into a positive force for, for moral good? I'm inclined to think yes. And with Owen's last remark, I also do want to underscore, I think all of the moral um, uh, life is enriched by emotions writ large. So it's not that anger is the one and true moral emotion. Owen has written very, I think, illuminatingly about shame. And I think guilt. And I think people um, like McAllister Bell who've written well about, about um, uh, contempt. And uh, my colleague in psychology at the CUNY Graduate Center, um, Hannah um, uh, 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 Chapman, sorry, has written about disgust as being very important for moral judgments about character um, as opposed to action. All of these emotions are important. I think compassion is an extremely important construct that can do good, but I really want to turn uh, to Emily to ask for the concrete answer to what good it actually does. Okay. Um, yeah, so I think um, just to, to Jesse's first point about having kind of cynical read about, about how um, oppression and power um, operates within religious philosophical systems, I think yeah, well, well noted, um, and I think that is something that we 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 should keep um, our our radar up for um, for sure. In the case of meditation, I think it's somewhat complicated by the fact that this. Um, I mean, my understanding about of the history of Buddhism, anyway, um, it, it wasn't really something that was prescribed to the masses. It, it, it was something that was actually the kind of elitist 
Um, so there's that, there's another angle of power. Um, but in terms of the original question about um, kind of meditation as um, non-action, um, that, that's a really tricky one because it really depends on what we mean by um, emotions being action-based or having an action component. What is What kind of action do we have in mind? I think in our discussion, we've kind of been assuming like action in the world, like, you know, you're mad at a, um, like Celine's example, you're mad at a political party and then maybe you run for office or something. It's like a clear action. Um, but there's also sort of action, internal actions, right? Actions of the mind. Um, Owen was kind of talking about those when he thought like be indifferent to indifferent things. That's kind of an action of the mind. And and for Buddhist Buddhist thinkers, especially South Asian Buddhist thinkers, they tend to think about um, mental ac actions as actions. Um, so they're mental acts, they're speech acts, there's acts of the body that that's how it tends to get differentiated in Buddhism. Um, I won't say too much about that, except for just to say that I'm, I'm not sure if, uh, if you're changing thoughts and judgments and emotions and, and uh, meditation that that would not be um, my sense is from a Buddhist point of view anyway, that would be considered doing something doing an action. And maybe for those of you more familiar with with the Western um, um, uh, canon, like maybe someone like Iris Murdoch or something, that kind of changing the view um, is doing something. Fascinating. Um, thank you. Another question here, I think, is for anyone who wants who wants to sort of answer it. Um, there's there's a couple actually that sort of fit in this vein. So one person, Olivia Samnick, is asking, why of all things does anger often conceal socially frowned upon emotions like shame, fear, or frustration? Um, and another comment, um, I'll try and check who it's from, is talking about insecurity as well. Um, Boosk um, uh, Gulatin. Uh, Gul Gultikin, apologies. Um, so things like these other sort of socially frowned on about, upon emotions like insecurity, like um, uh, like these other sorts of feelings. Uh, why do you think they often conceal these socially frowned upon emotions? Celine, does any of your work on the phenomenology of anger speak to this point in terms of other feelings like frustration and fear and shame? Maybe not quite, but one thing that came up when you were um, explaining that question is the notion of self-respect, which we haven't talked so much about today, which is that anger can be connected with um, recognizing that something has some harm or some wrong has been done to you. And I think that maybe we, this, the reason I thought of it is in relationship to insecurity. I think anger may actually have a role in turning insecurity around in some cases when you recognize, okay, something bad has happened. And then going back to the question of action, you may not even take any concrete action, let's say in the world, but recognizing something as a harm connects to self-respect and also can be a way of internally resisting your oppression. This is a point that has been made, um, for example, by Carol Hay. So resisting your own oppression from an internal perspective is already some way forward. Fantastic. So subverting sometimes that relationship that we tend to assume between anger and things like insecurity. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. Oh, was that a hand on that? Um, yeah, I was just going to say uh, one of the things that I love about Celine's the paper I know that she's talking about now, but I haven't read it in a long time. And it relates to what Jesse and Emily were just talking about, about um, mental action. I mean, in some ways, as I recall, Celine, right, your view is that anger at the gaze, the black person's anger at the gaze of the racists, um, in some sense is, going back to Jesse's punk rock days, cathartic internally, 
because it restores self-respect from an attempt to downgrade or undermine it, right? So it's a mental activity. It's, it's as it were, a, a form of behavior. It's internal and it, uh, it, it helps overcome suffering by taking the right position in relation to one's to oneself. And I think that's, uh, I mean, your paper discusses, that, that seems like an important role for anger. Yeah, I agree. Um, in the passage I've been referring to about Fenon, he says that he recognizes himself as a black man in that moment in which he experiences the anger and instead of remaining silent, actually, um, you know, rec rec recognizes himself as wronged and so can move forward with whatever action internal or external that he may want to take. Just coming in on that, I mean, I, I do think we should allow that shame, even though we tend to be an anti-shame culture, at least uh, in, in our uh, explicit rhetoric, I think shame does have important roles. Owen brings that out in his new book. There's a, a really interesting and provocative paper by Cheshire Calhoun arguing that when you're shamed by others, even if you think they're fundamentally wrong and even doing you a harm, um, you live in a social space and understanding how you're perceived by others does have some import. So we do need to listen um, to, to shame. I've been doing some work um, with the philosophers, um, Jen Eikers and Arena uh, Pismeni on the topic of what we call emotional injustice. And we talk a lot about shaming and the violence of shaming, but listening to shame is important. Putting that listening aside, how do you combat the shame? And I think Celine's work speaks to this and anger is really one of the very important tools. Uh, Owen mentioned Stonewall before. And if you are a, uh, you know, a member of an oppressed class because of your sexual identity um, and you are shamed, to be in public is to be vulnerable. Uh, vulnerable to a very violent gaze. And we have trans people and gay people coming out in the street. That's not just a metaphor, literally coming out of their hiding place where they're being beaten and abused by police regularly and raided by police and giving payoffs to police to come out in the streets, to take the streets and say, we're not gonna hide anymore. We are out and we are proud to do that is an act of angry and empowering defiance. And we think about anger as a painful and negative emotion. It can be a joyous emotion. Everyone in earshot here has probably been to a protest. I hope so. Look at the faces around you. There's a lot of anger. Every sign expresses anger. Every step forward expresses anger. But there is so much joy on the faces of joining together in solidarity and fighting against injustice. So I think there's this enormously pleasurable, empowering, feeling associated with anger when it's channeled effectively. And that is a tremendously powerful antidote for shame. A fascinating point. I also, that also makes me think as well about um, when if we're always looking at anger in isolation and whether sometimes we should instead be seeing its relationships with other emotions of ours and how that might actually, you know, from that might emerge a new, even more productive emotion or outcome. Um, so sometimes, yeah, a cautionary tale there of just always seeing it in isolation. Um, there's, uh, Emily, please go ahead. Um, just very quickly on your last point, Ella. Yeah, I just wanted to add too that in my own experience, I think sometimes it's not just that like anger can um, 
uh, be an antidote to, to fear or shame or insecurity or anger can reveal those things. I think that's true. But then sometimes those other things can reveal anger as well. Like sometimes you might feel very insecure or very afraid or anxious in a situation and not really know why. And then kind of it, it emerges that actually we're really angry about it. And I think that happens in situations where um, we might make the um, uh, we might kind of calculate that our anger is not going to get uh, uptake. So there's a, there's I think a lot of like fear of anger or insecurity about anger that is operating you know in from the other perspective. Fascinating, even obscuring how we access the anger ourselves. Um, Kristen Andrews, so we've only got a few minutes left here, so we'll see if we can get through this last one. Uh, says, thanks everyone. Um, I wanted to invite you to say something about the relationship between anger and punishment, which is often portrayed as an essential element of social norms. Um, and interested to hear the panel on the point that Jesse's making that anger is necessary for morality. Maybe we can stick with the first point there about the connection between um, anger and punishment, uh, just for time purposes. Does anybody want to tackle that one? I mean, just very quickly to get it started, I, I do think once we've severed the assumed link between anger and vengeance, the idea that anger leads to forms of punishment that are retributive uh, can be reconsidered. And um, there's a kind of forgiveness that can occur, but also kind of instrumentality where you say, the function of my anger isn't to harm someone, it's to recognize and call out injustice. And once that's been brought into light and into the you know official mechanisms in place, the institutional mechanism in place for addressing it. And once it's been identified as having a locus that not necessarily limited to an individual actor, but to structural sources and, and factors that led to those individual actions, then we can channel anger into forms of not so much punishment, but, but corrective justice um, that can be extremely effective. And I do think things like, you know, like restorative justice, redistribution, uh, reparation, those are all possible outcomes of anger. The assumption that anger should lead to causing harm to the perpetrator is not one we need to accept. Fantastic. Owen, you've got a finger on that one. I, I just, I totally agree with what Jesse said. I just think I was going to give the example of things like truth and reconciliation commissions. Uh, Desmond Tutu just passed uh, very recently, but that was a, uh, a wonderful new learning experience for the world, you might say, which is being passed around now and connects, as Jesse said, with reparations. And it does have to do with getting all the emotions together in the room, namely saying there's been great historical harm, great hurt to all of us, and we need to find a way through this that's not conceptually or empirically connected to vengeance. One quick thing, if I could just add this about something, I think it's been very valuable and for me to hear the emphasis on, and I think Jesse's um, depiction of what it's like to be at a demonstration of various sorts and the joy, I think that's very, very valuable too. Uh, I just want to go back though to one thing, just um, that there is some empirical very evidence. Very briefly, that's okay. Pardon? Very briefly, if that's okay. Yeah, I just wanted to say there are people who do, uh, there are some people who think that anger management training, which involves people practicing and getting out their anger in other ways, than on the abused spouse or whatever works. It just doesn't work. Those people just get angrier. That's all. 
Right, fantastic. Uh, Emily, you had a hand if you if you want the final, um, uh, yeah, final point. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure, but I guess I was just going to say that in terms of institutional punishment, I think what Jesse was saying makes a lot of sense, but I do also want to point out that I don't know what how the question was intended, but um, there's also like punishing children and like doing that in anger, um, I think can be really problematic or other kinds of punishment that are not institutional. Um, they may have different dynamics um, with regard to how productive anger would be. Uh, so I'm just sort of adding that as a complication. Wonderful. It really pains me to have to stop this here. I think this is a fascinating discussion. That is all we have time for. It has been such a great pleasure to hear from Owen Flanagan, Celine LeBeouf, uh, Emily McRae and Jesse Prince tonight on the topic of anger. Thank you very much everyone at home for joining in and of course thank you so much to the panelists for joining us. Uh, for those wanting to find out more there are some short biographies of our, of our speakers on the LSE event page for tonight um, and of course do keep an eye out for future LSE events but thank you very much and good night. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.